listening to The Big Album Show with Paul Dillon and Dan O'Neill. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Big Album Show with me, Paul. And me, Dan. This is a very special show, um, something slightly different from myself and Dan today. We are talking about the score, um, about the soundtrack from the incredible horror film, The Exorcist. Um, This uh, show is a little bit different, as I said, in that The Exorcist soundtrack is not quite the normal soundtrack, and we will discuss how and why um, as we go through the show. But it is a Halloween-themed show. It is a little spooky. And just to say that if you are feeling in any way, um, you know, if, if, if you find maybe some of the, uh, you know, talk of horror and so on, if it triggers you in any way, um, you know, please uh, just just plug plug out, uh, Dan. I think because we don't want to scare anybody, do we? Oh, I I think people will be very very scared when they hear this podcast because <laughs> they, 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 <laughs> I, I'm just I, I'm I'm like the the movie we're talking about is The Exorcist, and I know you're gonna you're gonna do an introduction to the film now, but like genuinely, it's there, there's something so scary about the film that when we, when me and you discussed uh, talking about The Exorcist on this show, I almost had second thoughts because like any superstitious bone I have in my body was triggered by even the thought of covering this, uh, this movie. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things about the movie, Dan, is what I find fascinating is, so obviously, the, so let's tr- trace the history for, for a second for people who don't know. So when P- Peter Blatty writes the book, it's released 1971. It's a kind of a Catholic novel, essentially. Um, it's He credits, uh, for example, in the book, in the novel, um, a number of Jesuit priests. Um, you know, it's a very Catholic novel. And what it does really is it discusses a kind of a, it, it deals with religious and scientific subjects. And it really discusses, you know, is th- this demonic possession possible? Um, and what is it? And there's this great debate going on uh, in the novel. Now, that's kind of lost in the film um, because the film comes out in 73, re-released in 1998 in Ireland uh, when I when I saw it. And it hadn't been seen for some years um, and it blew me away when I saw it. And I remember when, when I saw it in 1998 and um, people literally hid behind their seats. Now, that's that that now t- t- more than 20 years on looks a little bit trite because we have been desensitized and um, we've been de-shocked, if that's a word. Originally, when it came out in 73, um, people, uh, you know, the, the first showings of it, you hear about people vomiting, people fainting, um, and people having all sorts of reactions to it. But the, one of the interesting things about The Exorcist, two interesting things about The Exorcist, as a horror film, the most successful horror film of all time. But what's remarkable about it is, is the influence that it had on popular culture, because it has given birth to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of copycat films. You turn on any streaming service and you just check out, you're going to see The Exorcism, The Possession, all of these different things that were heavily influenced by The Exorcist. That's number one. Number two is that it completely, uh, you know, it launched again and it was part of a wave. It wasn't It wasn't solely responsible, but the horror genre had been dying out. It had this big boom in the 30s, but again, it re-emerged then and The Exorcist was very, very, very much part of that as the most successful uh, film of all time, uh, horror film of all time. 
Now, another interesting thing about Across Dan is uh, there is some amount of documentaries available and podcasts available. I mean, there are stories and stories and stories about stories when it comes to The Exorcist. Yeah, it's it's like there's a great one I watched um, that was on the release when it came out in video in around 1998, just after it, it had been in the cinemas for a short period. It, um, that that was on that and it has interviews with the cast and the writer and the, and the director and that's one of the best ones it's on youtube and um, it's like the first one that pops up but you're right when you think about this show this sorry this uh, film and you think about doing a podcast on the film it's almost hard to know what to talk about because everything's been talked about before and um, but like as you say it was effectively banned in ireland until 1998 because um it was actually the British Board of Film Classification who banned the video release of it, of it in 1980, which effectively meant it wasn't freely available in the Republic of Ireland either. And, and when it came out in 1998, I would have been in school and I remember it very well. And I remember watching it as, um, as a kind of a teenager, I suppose. And although Ireland was a much more modern country in 1998 than it would have been when the film was initially released in the 1970s. It still was, um, it, it still was quite a Catholic country. And, sure. you know, I went to a, a Catholic school and, 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 and all that, 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 that entails. And I remember when everyone in the schoolyard was talking about this film it was seen differently from other horror movies like, you know, Scream or, or, or those various films because people genuinely really felt, and, and, and many people still do, by the way, but felt that the evil within this film, depicted in this film, was something very, very real, something that had the potential to actually impact uh, other people's lives and there was all these stories and urban legends which I'm sure we'll get into around the film in terms of things that happened on the set and you know there's uh, there's actually still priests in Ireland at the moment who carry out exorcisms right one of them a fellow, a fellow called Father Pat Collins you might have seen him on the Late Late Show like he spoke in detail about carrying out real exorcisms and he said like Ryan Tuberty, the presenter of this talk show in Ireland, asked him, you know, what do you see when you go into a room and you're about to carry out an exorcism? And he said, you know, you might meet someone who knows everything about your past, that understands languages they never learned, that have superhuman strength. And he even said, you'll hear they have a really strong, deep, raspy voice, which is everything that's depicted in this film. So some people, you know, some, some people really genuinely believe that the evil depicted in this film is a real presence in the world which i think makes it all the more scary for people you know yeah no doubt about it dan and i mean i suppose where i'm coming from in relation to why that is or how that is is i think it's a lot to do with the success of the director and the cast um 
I mean, William Friedkin, very successful director when he, by the time he, he, he agreed to take on The Exorcist, he takes the book, bloody does the screenplay. But I, I mean, I think Friedkin was very much the person in control. And one of the things he did, he did lots of crazy stuff. A lot of this is, 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 is out there as well publicized. It's all been said many times over. But one of the things I find remarkable about how he, how he, how he directed this, he, he, he slapped people um, in order to get a reaction out of them. But he also made that he refrigerated um, a lot of the scenes uh, in in the house. Um, so when they look freezing, they, well, they are freezing because it's literally in a refrigerator. And um, so Freakin was willing to go to extremes to get this movie down and to get it right. And what an achievement uh, it was. Now, he's an interesting character uh, in his own right. He very much sounds like Trump. Um, is how he sounds like he's this very, very brash, uh, very direct, um, kind of off-putting way of talking. But equally, there's no taking away from his singular, his many achievements, but his singular achievement in The Exorcist is to make this thing believable, that you are automatically taken into this world. And one of the things he's, I love the way, I mean, the sound, the, the score, the soundtrack, it was all him. He, it, he's the person responsible for the music in this, in this film. And what he wanted to achieve was, he said, like a cold hand at the back of the neck. That's the effect that he wanted from the music. So he, it's only in a handful of scenes do things go up tempo and the music gets really, you know, extreme and really loud. For the most part, the music is in the background and allows the sound, the sound to really, really come true. But one of the things I love, and look, Tubular Bells is the song that everybody knows from The Exorcist. That's the famous tune. That's the signature tune. But what he was looking for was uh, like Brahms' lullaby, which everybody in the world knows is how you would sing, a, what you know, a lot of people would know is how you would sing a, a baby or a small child to sleep. It's that lullaby song, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, little baby. That's Brahms' lullaby. He wanted that. Um, by chance, he was listening to loads and loads of tracks and he comes up with Tubular Bells. That's the Mike Oldfield tune. And that's the tune from the, from the soundtrack that everybody knows. Am I right, Dan? Yeah, you are. Like, um, it, it, b- b- before I talk about Mike Oldfield, um, because I have a, a bit to say on him, like uh, your, your point about um, w- William Friedkin uh, and his approach to the music, I think it's fascinating. You're right, like completely right when you when you said he's kind of Trump esque. I kind of laughed because uh, I definitely agree with that. And um, like the way he approached people about the music for this film was was quite funny. Like so, he he first of all he approached a guy called Bernard Herman who had written music for the likes of the Psycho movie. And when he first uh, met Herman about the Exorcist, he played. Herman the, the the movie and apparently Herman turned around to him and said yeah I think I can save this piece of shit and uh, Friedkin turned around and he said what uh, what what do you have in mind and um, Herman said well look there's this great church organ we should use and apparently Friedkin turned around and said you want to use a church organ okay nice meeting you it was great to meet an interesting person <laughs> and this it, 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 then then he got a guy um called uh, I think he pronounced his name Lalo Schifrin um mm. to write a score for the movie and he wrote the, the the whole score um and like you said he didn't want the soundtrack to kind of overwhelm the viewer um and he basically asked Schifrin to kind of 
toned down the, the, the soundtrack. Schifrin said no. And again, uh, you know, your man just said, okay, see you later. So when people are recording movies, they generally, you know, directors generally pick what they call a temp track to go over the movie, which is kind of music, random music that they've picked for the particular scenes, but that they're going to replace later with something more specific. Um, What ended up happening with The Exorcist is that the temp track that the director chose for the film ended up being the music that they kept. Now, they re-recorded it um, specifically for the film, I suppose, so it all kind of flowed in together, sounded similar in that. Um, But... That that's um uh, that that's um that that just kind of gives you an insight into how single-minded he was in terms of how he approached the movie, and when he found Tubular Bells, he actually found it by mistake. He was going through various records, and he had a copy of of this record, and it didn't even have the proper label on it. It was a white label disc, handwritten Tubular Bells on it. He put it on, and he heard Mike O'Fields Tubular Bells, and um. Tubular Bells in itself, of course, is an album um, by Mike Oldfield, released in 1973. Um, and like when you when you listen to that music, it's incredible to think that Oldfield was only 17 when he wrote that music. He recorded the initial demos for the music on a two-track recorder. So nowadays, you know, the likes of Jacob Collier and and, and great musicians like that have, you know technology at hand and they can basically record as many tracks as they want and edit and so on he was recording the demo for tubular bells on like two tracks and managed to do that um and like of course then there's there's you know interesting connections there with richard branson you know a bit about that paul yeah, I mean, of course, Branson uh, had been, you know, had been the person to quote unquote discover uh, Oldfield, and um, he, you know, Oldfield was an integral part of the success of um, of Virgin and the early uh, um, the early success of, of Virgin it was a very successful record uh, in its in its own right. Um, and you see, this is a fascinating thing about The Exorcist. I mean, it's the characters that got involved in this and are somehow related to this story. I mean, um, you mentioned Dan, and I, I think it's one of the interesting things, Herman, Bernard Herman, who's a huge uh, compo- 20th century uh, American composer and had done the score for, um, he did, you know, he, he recorded the, the responsible for the scores for um, Citizen Kane, ta- Taxi Driver, Psycho, as you mentioned, uh, and many, many others. Um, he, you know, to, to reject him out of hand um, must have been, it's a reflection of the confidence that Friedkin had in this film, but also, I mean, you, you know, also just how how sure-footed this director was in, in, in what he was doing. And I think one of the things that he, he didn't like um, about um, about what Herman was saying was Herman wanted him to cut the Iraqi scene. So the Iraqi scene mm. is the first scene that's very, very famous. Anyone who knows the film, these are million spires alert. Go and watch the film if you haven't seen it. But there's a there's a great uh, the great scene in the beginning where the young Father Merlin, um, we'll give them their proper, we'll give them their 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 film names. Uh, Father Merlin, he he the young the the younger version of that. He is in Iraq and there's this long uh, encounter and there's terrific sounds of people um, on an archaeological dig. 
and he comes uh, face to face with a with a little emblem, and, and it, it it's a it's a fantastic introduction and brings you right in. It, it, it's you go into a strange world, interact. Interesting thing about that is, and um, not to go off on a tangent, but that is the modern day uh, Iraq. It's a place called Mosul, which is controlled by ISIL. Um, the Iraqi version of ISIS, and again, you know, it's it's just it, it, what you see in this film is, I think, the mastery of a brilliant director. He brings it to Iraq. That brilliant tune. Um, it's all it's done by the National Philharmonic uh, Orchestra in London. It's a very very subtle little piece of music. It's the first track on the on the soundtrack when it was released and i think in 2016 or 2017 they put it right up there in the beginning as you would it's the it's the opening scene and um, it's a it's a beautiful piece of music it's quite subtle it lets the sound of all these shovels and and, and then there's dogs barking it lets all of that come to the fore and um, and that's what uh, is the the first track uh on on the on the soundtrack version that 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 is available and it's a ter- it's terrific uh piece of music i mean tubular bells i mean you could easily record a podcast on tubular bells uh, right now and and it would be interesting and people would find it uh, find something in it i mean it's recorded by oldfield um and and it is a it is a terrific tune i mean it's on the it's it, there's loads of different trailers for the exodus but you will find it wasn't in the original trailer the original trailer is by far the most terrifying trailer it's uh it, it's it's available on youtube it's the it's the scariest but in, in later trailers they did use uh tubular bells it's also um it, it it's the, it's the track that brings when we first um in, encounter um you know the the home and the house uh in the washington dc and it brings you right into that home and the familiarity of it and that kind of lullaby effect that freaking was going for and um, so it's just a terrific uh piece of music dan isn't it and i mean again it's something that almost the whole world knows and it is it is a famous part of this movie uh, isn't it really uh tubular bells yeah, it, it, it certainly is. Um, like, Oldfield was in a very vulnerable state of mind when he when he wrote and recorded um, Tubular Bells. So, you know, we, we are talking the early 70s here and there was a lot of kind of drug use and things like LSD. And apparently Oldfield um, had, a, had a particularly bad trip on LSD where he kind of saw other humans as, as machines, uh, meaty machines effectively, but it really got into his psyche. And for a long time afterwards, he was very, very down. Um, and music was his escape. Um, so he spent a great deal of, of time escaping off into the musical world. And um, what a masterpiece he came, came up with. Like he plays a lot of the instruments on the, the the track like the track the whole track actually is like one track that extends over the whole two sides of the tubular bells album and um, in its unedited form and some of some of the instrumentation on it is amazing like there's a live version of it you can watch on youtube which was on the bbc and um, towards the end, the end of side one of the Tubular Bells album, there's this bass line that Oldfield uh, plays. It, it kind of comes in around 18 minutes. Um, and he plays this bass line, a really complex bass line for about seven minutes. And if you watch the video of him playing this bass line, he plays it note for note perfectly. But it's so kind of difficult on the fingers. About halfway through, you can actually see him begin to wince because he's like his hands are actually getting sore from uh, playing the bass line. So 
like he, he's a really uh, un, un, unreal musician. Um, and that opening scene then you mentioned with the, the, the music on the Iraq scene, as it's called, like it's, it's just another example of the detail Friedkin um, had in mind. Like when you look at it, when you're next time you're watching the film, right? Even just look at how he did the opening credits and he matched that up with the music. So um, the credits come up on the screen and all of the credits kind of, um, they kind of slowly appear on the screen bar the title of the movie, The Exorcist, which just appears on the screen almost as a kind of a, a surprise. And just as The Exorcist title appears on the screen, that's when you get the chanting that's part of the first track on the soundtrack. So you have this kind of, like he, he matched the music up absolutely perfectly with the, 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 the film. But as you say, Paul, it's never overbearing. It never takes away from the, the sound effects. And the sound effects themselves are really interesting. They got um, nominated uh, for an Academy Award, specifically for, for, the sound, uh, for the sound effects. There was a guy working on um, the film called uh, um, Gonzalo Guerrera, I think his name was. I probably um, pronounced the name wrong. But he was um, a Mexican sound engineer and uh, apparently, like, he li almost literally at some stages went in and began watching the film on a screen and almost um, performed the sound effects for the film live. So, like, the, the famous uh, scene in the film where um, the, the, her head is turning around, that's actually a wallet that he got off one of the crew with, uh, with credit cards in it, and he's twisting the leather wallet. And that's the sound you hear for the neck going around. And it's really, really effective. So like the artistry of the whole crew on this film to make the sounds um, just like incredible. It's, and it's why it stands out all these years later as an incredible uh, film. Because let's face it, some of the films in the horror genre have kind of aged badly. Um, they're like, they're, they're a bit yeah, like, passe. I think there's no doubt about that, Dan. And I think many of the... Uh, movies uh, that um, the spin-offs uh, you'd almost call them um, from The Exorcist uh, completely flopped and um, if you look at something like Exorcist, uh, the beginning, the prequel uh, a number of years ago, a poor show and there's The Exorcist 2 and 3 which never really reached the heights uh, of the, uh, the, the the film The Exorcist, the, the first one let's be honest and that's to be kind about them. Then there was a TV show a number of years ago in 2016 I think in The Exorcist a, a two part, uh, two series TV show which was hard going uh, to sit through to be honest with you uh, I did sit through it and, and, and uh, so you don't have to um, but it wasn't again it wasn't something that you would recommend and then of course there's this litany um of other ones i mean the best of them um for me is the exorcism of emily rose but i don't want to uh, you know go too far down that road because we are on the music and on the on the soundtrack it is all about the music and i mean i think i agree down everything uh, that you had to say the level of detail that goes into the tracks the level of detail that's in the sound it's replicated in every other part uh, of this incredible movie. And you mentioned the, the wallet uh, thing that make the sound. Of course, one of the, 
the, the things that comes to mind is that incredible dummy that they used uh, with the swiveling neck, uh, which is a scary looking thing uh, right up until this very day. Um, there, there's a couple of other things that I want to say. I mean, I do think it's important that, you know, we, we do our tr- top three tracks and we, we've always done it and everything else. So we'll, we'll do it on, on this. I mean, for me, Tubular Bells is number one. Absolutely no, no doubt about that. Um, I like Iraq, I like the Iraq uh, piece. I probably put that number two. Just want to mention five pieces for orchestra, okay? Because that accompanies uh, the hypnosis scene, um, and that is a terrific scene. And actually, I often, if if given half the opportunity, I start to act that scene out myself. <laughs> um, I have been known to try and do that, where it's the hypnosis scene um, where. Um, you know the the psychiatrist comes around and he and he says I'm talking to the person uh, inside of Regan now and if if you were if you were there you two are hypnotized and must answer all my questions it's I hope I haven't freaked anybody out now but mm. you know there's a terrific little piece of music uh, in the background that's really soft it's really subtle uh, and it's called five pieces for orchestra and it's just brilliant and you almost wouldn't notice it and mm. um, but you take it out and, and you, 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 when you take it out and listen to it as a piece of music in itself, it's a beautiful piece of music. Only once or twice uh, does the soundtrack does the, do really kind of come to the fore and get really, really loud and really noticeable. Um, the Night of the Electric Insect Stand is the standout scary track on this soundtrack. It is absolutely terrifying. Don't listen to it at, long, at night. It is in the movie. It is the part it's in one of the most terrifying um, parts of the movie. And even describing it, actually, you kind of wonder, should you? Because you wonder you're going to freak listeners uh, out. But it is in, it's in a really scary part of the film. Um, and it's a terrifying little uh, piece of music in its own right. But that's one of the few loud pieces, if you will. Mm. Um, and he obviously wanted a particular, freaking obviously wanted a particularly high dramatic effect on that. So most things are quiet, subtle in the background. And then once or twice, he brings it right up and he does it there. Um, with the electric insects track um and you know that's my well that's my top four actually um i i don't know dan do you have a top uh, three or even four because i've done what, four what what part of the film what what is the the scene that you're referencing sorry the night of the electric insect scene yeah. is where um regan is 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 asleep and mm. she's breathing and you, you can see the, the breath in the air. And apparently that is real breath uh, in the air because the, the whole place is refrigerated. So Regan uh, is unconscious uh, or asleep um, mm. and she's on the bed. She's breathing up into the air like that. And, and the uh, housekeeper for, uh, calls uh, in for the Karras, uh, to see this. Mm. And it just comes up uh, on her belly help me okay and it just he brings it right up when you can see the writing coming out it's just highly dramatic highly effective and and again it's that level of detail and read i mean he i mean he says doesn't he dan um i think you referenced it yourself earlier he didn't want to tell people how to feel or how Mm. to fear almost but once or twice he, he he allows the music to do that yeah, that, that is one of the standout moments, both musically and uh, visually of the film for me. Um, that'd be definitely up, up there as one of my number one musical moments. And I think that the scene itself is particularly shocking because what, 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 what you know, with, with these horror movies, I think, with like The Exorcist, what, what, what happens on the screen is actually only part of the horror. I think that helped me on... on, on on Reagan's stomach 
suggests the turmoil that Reagan is going through cap- captured inside of her own body by the demon, you know? Yeah. And that's why it's so psychologically scary. And then the music, as you say, really, really drives that point home. I do agree with you that Iraq um, is, is very strong. It starts the movie particularly well. Um, and like some people don't like the Iraq scene. I think it, it's it's really good. Um, I, 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 definitely, I, 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 I definitely, like it does, it does kind of seem a little bit separate from the rest of the movie. But there's subtle reminders throughout the movie to it. And one of the interesting points, just random points about um, the, 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 the priest, um, what's his name again? Father, Father Lancaster Merrin, the older priest. Um, he, who, yeah, who, who appears in the Iraq scene as a younger man. He, 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 although he's playing an older priest in... Um, in, in later on in the movie he was actually only 42 That's when he right. recorded the movie and the, the 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 effects on his face are incredible as well and then of course the my, my third um <clears throat> my third track would be tubular bells because it's it, 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 tubular bells is actually an album um I, I know it's a separate album as well uh, so but but as an album it's an album I kind of hold dear because I remember um when I was when I was young I must have looked like a little freaky four-year-old but my ma had it on a cassette right and on one side she had uh, because back then people used to record their vinyl onto cassettes right so on one side she had uh tubular bells and the other side she had tina turner and uh <laughs> don't judge and i was uh, i used to listen to this cassette um going around the house in a walkman and i remember one time we had a carpenter in the house and he goes uh, what are you listening to I said, oh, tubular bells. And he kind of raised an eyebrow thinking, my God, is this Damien out of the omen or something I'm talking to here? Um, but yeah, it's, it, I, I think it's a fantastic, um, an, an absolutely fantastic piece of music. Um, so yeah, but, but I, I suppose because it's a Halloween scary show, I think we have to indulge ourselves and talk a little bit briefly about the spooky occurrences that actually happened on the set. Um, so many spooky occurrences happened on the set that they actually got a real priest to exercise the set. Funny enough, Father Dyer, who appears in the film, he's the guy who gives um, Father Karras his last rites at the end of the film. He is actually a real priest. Um, his, 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 his real name is Father William O'Malley. And he um, performed an exorcism on the set because... Um, the stage burnt the set burnt down at one stage and they couldn't account for why it burned down um, and at another point um, a, a Jesuit priest passed a miraculous medal to uh, the man who plays Father Caras and told him to look out for look out look after himself because he was playing with some um, you know dodgy spirits um, and apparently uh, according to the actor who played uh, Father Karras the priest died within two days of giving him the miraculous medal and um, there was nine deaths in total sadly connected with the film and that's according to um, the actress who played um, <coughs> Chris McNeil, Ellen Burstein um, and th- there was various other occurrences you know so um, some of these things are kind of urban legends, I think, but I think there is a grain of truth behind other things. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. It's 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 either in it's it's once it's incredibly unfortunate uh, series of events. Now, with that said, I mean, film sets, and as we've seen, you know, so tragically recently mm. with Rust, and there, I mean, I've no experience. Uh, I've no experience talking about them. But I've no experience of what what it's like to be on one, and you know, slightly different era safety wise. I mean, health and sa- the health and safety uh, wasn't uh, as it might be many decades later. I mean, for example, um, Lin- Linda Blair famously, Regan famously suffered um, a very serious uh, back injury, mm. um, which she never quite uh, recovered from. Um, there mm. was there, there was a whole heap of, 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 of other. And, and, and I mean, one of the things about it is, it's almost as if there's tragedy and fear and horror right throughout everything to do with this movie. So, for example, and again, not to not to digress, but the, one of the one of the things about this movie that I like most uh, is the whole thing around Father Karras. He is an extraordinary played by um, played by a playwright, of course, not um, a professional actor. That was Jason yeah. Miller, the successful, very successful U.S. playwright. He's a very haunted figure. Um, and he plays this, there's this brilliant um, subplot almost, you might call it, in relation to his mother. Um, and there's a huge amount of guilt involved. And then there's the scene uh, in the psychiatric hospital. Um, and, you know, you referenced Dan, the, the real priest. Um, and what a terrifying thing. I mean, this is actually terrifying for me anyway. Well, not terrifying, sorry. I, I, I scratched that word for a minute. But just one of the things that's worth noting about the psychiatric um, hospital scenes is that the patient's are real psychiatric patients. Now, there's all sorts of issues about that. I mean, looking at the lo, looking at that now, you kind of say, well, how, how right is that? I mean, it doesn't feel right at all. Mm. Um, but it just adds to adds to the thing that this is not a normal everyday run of the mill film. Um, mm. That there's, and it's certainly not a, an, an ordinary run of the mill soundtrack. Um, and it, I mean, again, the soundtrack, if you if you listen to it. Taken separate from the film, does it make a lot of sense? No, not really. But if you take the, if you had the Exorcist without the music that's in it, it would not be the Exorcist. There's absolutely no doubt about mm. that. Um, and really, it all goes back to Friedkin and his choices um, and what he knew um, what, and, and his definite sense. He had a definite sense of every character. And we haven't, we haven't mentioned at all William Peter Blatty, who, who, mm. who, whose book, uh, whose novel, the whole thing is based on, um, just simply wasn't, wasn't time uh, to do that. Very interesting uh, character in his own right. Um, but every character, whether it be Karis, whether it be um, Merrin, sorry, I, I got the name wrong here. It's, it's Father Merrin, not Father Merlin. Merlin's a magician. And they, they all have this little depth in, they all have a depth in them. They all have a story to tell. And there's fear and horror everywhere. And what a success uh, this th- this movie is. I mean, dare we give it a score out of 10 as a soundtrack, Dan? Yeah, I, I, well, well, as a soundtrack, yeah, I'd give it an. I, 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 it's hard to rate it out of ten, um, because it's so unlike anything we we uh, we usually discuss. Like, I will say, if you if if you just look at Tubular Bells on its own again for a moment, and um, my hot take of the night for that particular track on the album is that I think in some ways Tubular Bells sets the foundations for music that we, we we saw in later decades like sometimes when I listen to that album um or that track even I hear the kind of um 
I hear the foundations of, of, of modern dance music because yeah. it, it kind of loops a lot and it's repetitive, it builds and, and it, like it almost sounds like a track from a, a group like Orbital or something. Yeah. And then other times I think of modern bands like Seeger Ross in, in the way it's instrumental, it's, it's atmospheric and so on. And um, so I think it was a perfect track um, to go on the soundtrack. So overall, as a soundtrack, I'm going to give it a very, very healthy. I'm going to go nine because yeah. as, as, as film soundtracks go, I think this is iconic. And as you said earlier, like there's tracks on this album you do not want to listen to on your own like i would strongly recommend if you haven't watched the exorcist or you haven't listened to the soundtrack do neither on your own do it um in the company of a of a trusted friend or at least in the company of you know a relaxing drink or something because uh, i tell you it'll frighten the life out of you Absolutely, Dan. And I mean, I'm going to I'm going to go with you on that one. Like, I'd certainly go with a nine out of ten. The film for me is a ten out of ten. On, and the book, incidentally, is a ten out of ten. Get the book if you haven't read it um, and certainly watch the film uh, if you haven't seen it. But I'd imagine that most people listening to this podcast are very familiar with the film. And just like you shouldn't watch The Exorcist on, on your own, don't listen to the big album show alone. Please, <laughs> if you like this show, we're asking you, um, we're compelling you uh, to please uh, bring along another listener. We really appreciate uh, our listeners, our friends out there. Thank you so much. And thank you to the people who gave comments uh, on the show um, and, you know, who, who promoted us uh, online. Thanks to Linda. Thanks to Reddy. Thanks to um, somebody tagged Killing the Gascoon. Apparently he's a big fan. So shout out to him. Um, hope he enjoys. And um, as always, Dan, you know, please, you know, let's remind our listeners to support us on social media if they can. We really appreciate it. And f- remember to give us a little rating uh, if you enjoy the podcast. Dan, before we let our listeners go, we have some good pods coming up. Would you like to run through what they are? Um, yeah, so we have, um, in, in, in no particular order, we're going to be talking with Tom Dunn of Something yes. Happens. We're going to be looking at a very, very special album, Octung Baby. We're yes. also going to be looking at um, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants by Oasis. Yes. Um, sometimes criticised, some love it. Um, we'll be delving into that album and um if we get a chance Today by radiohead as well yeah yeah what a what a what a oh, i could talk about that one for more than one episode it's incredible we're we're, we're, we're back up for every two weeks now right until right until december um and we've got a great lineup of shows coming on next year we got album it's 25 years since the height of the brit pop period we're going to be dealing with al- albums uh in in the early part of 2022 by texas uh alanis Morissette. Um, I think Florence and the Machine is in there. So we've got a whole heap of really good pods coming up. And please, thank you uh, for supporting us so far. And please continue to support us. Um, and until the next time, thanks for listening. Slan. You're listening to The Big Album Show with Paul and Dan. Please remember to subscribe, hit like, and remember to follow us on our social media platforms at The Big Album Show. Yeah.